0: It's great to see you. Um, we're kind of finishing up this series on the gospel this morning, so if you haven't been with us, you're catching the tail end. And I would encourage you, if you've got some time, maybe you've got a commute, um, you can grab the sermons off the internet and feel free to, to run through those. We have worked really hard over the last five weeks to, to uncover, and I would say maybe even polish, some precious, precious biblical truths. And my hope for us, as I've just prayed for you this week, and as I think about our church, is that God would grow in us a wonder and an awe for those gems. That, that those things would go, grow precious to us. That the gospel truth would be an all-encompassing, precious, I love those things. Sort of a, kind of a, in our heart and in our lives, that that would be the, the heart cry for us. Okay, so, so here's how we're finishing up the series. Um, i want to do a review for through 1 Corinthians 15, so if you want to go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're going to start, and then I want to, uh, to try to show you and kind of the final turn of the series is what the gospel produces, like the movement created by the gospel. So as we grow in gospel awareness and we grow in our understanding of the gospel, what happens to a person? Okay, so that's where we'll finish it. We're going to finish that in Romans chapter 1. So 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're starting. You can follow along. I'm going to be reading out the ESV, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to try to just bring out 10 biblical facts about the gospel. Just beautiful, precious pearls of the gospel. So, so here we go. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul starts out, he's talking to a church, and he says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers. So gospel truth number one is we have to be reminded of the gospel, We are prone to forget the gospel. You are prone to forget the gospel. I am prone to forget the gospel. We have to continually, continually be reminded of the gospel. I mean, Galatians starts out with Paul saying, listen, this is my problem. I'm going crazy because you have forgotten the gospel. You have turned away from it. You are going after a different gospel. We are all so prone to forget the... Paul is talking to a church two believers and he's saying listen you're forgetting the thing here you need to be reminded of that listen we have got to be great reminders of the gospel for each other if you see bitterness anger if you see those things lodging in my heart it is your duty to be the gospel to me and i pray for courage I'll, i'll have the guts to be the gospel to you but we have got to be continually reminded of the gospel. We are prone to forget it. The gospel is for believers. It was the good gospel to us yesterday. It's the good gospel to us today. And it will be the good gospel to us tomorrow. The gospel is for believers. It's not just the, the, kind of the door that you walk into to get into the kingdom. It is the way you make all progress in the kingdom. We've got to be reminded of the beautiful gospel. And that's what Paul's saying. You need to be reminded of this. It is the shores and the shallows for the new believer, and it is the endless depths for the seasoned follower of Jesus. And we have got to be reminded of the gospel. Let's keep going. Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of, and here he he uses the word, this is the context here, of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what the gospel means. If you just want to take the literal meaning, the gospel means, that word means good news. And that is what it is. So I want to just take a second to remind you of the difference between news and advice. They're much different things. News and advice are two totally separate things. So, okay, walk with me, baby, back into a, um, let's say you're in an ancient village, an ancient city. And you watch, let's say you're a wife in that ancient city, and you watch your husband as he is polishing his sword. And you watch your son as he is, he's kind of beating on his shield, making sure his shield is up to par as he walks out to battle. And as you a person that is staying in the city, you watch the army go out and your life is, is, is tethered to the army. I mean, your livelihood. Your freedom or your slavery is going to be tethered to their success or failure. So, I mean, you are waiting with a great anticipation for the, for the messenger to come back. Have we won? Did we not? And in that moment when the messenger, you see the messenger on the horizon, he finally makes it into the gate of your city and he starts to declare his stuff to you, his message. You're hoping for news, not advice. Here's what advice sounds like. Advice is, we have lost the battle. Advice requires a military strategist to come in and say, listen, archers are there. Infantry, you're over here. And here is the plea for advice. Fight for your lives. The army's coming. That's advice. That is not the gospel. The gospel is news. It doesn't take a military strategist to give news. All it takes is a herald. So the guy running back is a herald. He is a proclaimer. And here's his message. It's not advice. It is the news about what has happened. About what has been done. So his message sounds like this. The battle has been won. We are still free. Your sons and, and your husbands are coming back. You're going to see them again. And that is the message of the gospel. It's news. It is the news that Christ has conquered. Satan's sin and death. I mean, that has happened. You're free. News is much different than advice, amen? And news has the, it has the potential to make drastic differences in our life. I mean, come back with me to maybe World War II, right? And let's say you're a man minding your own business on your way to work. You are on the walk to work. And all of a sudden, the news of they have surrendered comes to you. You know what it does? It causes otherwise sane men to dance in the street, right? That's the power of news. The gospel is the greatest news that has ever hit the planet. Let's keep reading. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, of the good news that I preached to you. The gospel, it spreads through your lips. That's how it happens. Your neighbor can know that you are a good man, that you're a good husband. You try to raise your kids well. But listen, your gospel cannot know the precious gospel, or your neighbor cannot know the precious gospel until you tell it to him. That is how the gospel gets out, through your lips and through my lips. Okay, so this is why in Romans 10, Paul's going to look back and he's going to say, okay, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, you can be saved. But how are they going to call on the name of the Lord unless they believe? And how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless somebody is sent and proclaims? The gospel spreads through the lips of men and women. This is plan A, and there is no plan B, right? I mean, plan A is not a telemarketer. Plan A is not a flyer. Plan A is not like this little evangelism cube that you're kind of messing around and Jesus pops out. That is not plan A. Plan A is you. Your life, your lips. The plan is the power of God being carried through the people of God as they proclaim the message of God. That's the plan. It's got to be preached. Let's keep going. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And then he says this, which you received. And so the gospel not only has to be preached, the gospel is personal. The benefits of the gospel are not given by family pedigree. It's not given because your mom and dad are a follower of Jesus. That's not how the blessings of God flow. The blessings of God do not flow through you going through a four-week class. The blessings of God do not flow through you filling out a card, raising a hand, through you reciting a prayer behind... The blessings of God flow through personal repentance and faith, a turning from sin and in faith turning to Jesus. That's how the blessings of God flow through the gospel. And so I want to take just a second to plead with you here if you have not personally received the gospel, and when you receive the gospel, you stiff arm a lot of other things. When you take this, you are saying no to all of these things. I mean, I'm thinking this week about Matthew 4, where where Jesus is going to start calling disciples, and he looks at at Simon and his brother, and he says, you know what? Here's what I I want you to leave your nets, drop them, and come and follow. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And here's the next phrase. Immediately, they dropped their nets and followed. Immediately, they received the gospel and they stiff-armed all else. They let go of their grip around the world and they clenched their fist around Jesus. That's what it means to receive the gospel. That is how we are saved by the gospel. That is how the gospel imparts its benefits to you. It's personal. And so if you have not received the gospel, rejected these things, and taken this thing. Now, I want to plead with you. What, what a beautiful day for that. I mean, th- this could be your day where the gospel benefits impact you, right? So, so it's a personal thing. Let's keep reading. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive. And, and then you've got these next two phrases. In which you stand and by which you are being saved. The gospel saves. Okay, now, you probably thought you were just coming to church this morning. And that's probably what you thought, right? But I'm about to give you a $30,000 education. I went to seminary for five years, thirty grand. right here. I'm giving it to you for free. I'm about to un- unpack three big words for you. It took five years to learn these, right? So here's three big words, $30,000 worth of stuff in your pocket this morning. Okay, when you think of the word saved in the Bible... There's a couple of different ways that it could be talking, at least three different ways, that it could be talking about the word save. Okay, so, so here's maybe sense number one, like way number one, would be saved in a past tense. That you were saved. Okay, it's this biblical idea of Justification okay so justification is a past reality it is something that happened it's a moment in time where we move from darkness into the light where we are an orphan and now we're an adopted son of god where we are one of gods we are adopted into the household of god The, the gospel benefits now at that moment at that moment are imparted to us we are made right with god in that moment that's a past tense you are saved justification Okay, now there's also a present tense reality. You are being saved. Okay, this is kind of the big word of sanctification. So you've got justification, past tense. Sanctification, this present tense reality. And here's what sanctification, when it says you are being saved, like it's using in this passage. It's saying you are being changed. You are being sanctified. You are growing in Christ's likeness. You're being conformed into the image of Christ. You look more like Christ today than you did yesterday and the week before and the month before. Okay, so seven and a half years ago, I got married. I've got a great wife, Laura. I mean, she's precious, right? And when I think back seven and a half years ago, here's the dominating thought that I have. What was she thinking? Like, I've got no idea, you know? Like, I look back, her, me, seven years ago, and the thought is, um, she was really fooled, you know? Like, I, I don't, I, I can't exactly figure out what, what her thought process was. And, and here, here's what I love to be able to see over the last seven years for me and for Laura. It's how God has been saving us. How he has been changing us. How he has been um, conforming and pressing on some of our sinful tendencies and selfish, just sort of tendencies that we have. And now he has been saving us. Okay, that's, that's the second idea, this present reality, that the gospel is changing you, that we're standing in the gospel, we're saturated by the gospel, we're growing in gospel awareness, and, the, and that gospel awareness is changing us. Okay, now here's the third reality. is this, this future kind of an idea that you will be saved. That's the biblical word glorification. That There will be a day where we leave our earthly bodies and we get legit ones, right? I mean, there will be a day where sin and death no longer destroy. There will be a day where cancer no longer kills. There will be a day where there's no longer earthquakes. There will be a day where if you're in Christ, you will be made perfect in Christ. But that's not until then. Okay, so now here's what Paul's saying. He is saying that the gospel, it is the thing that's saved. It's the thing that is saving. And it's the thing that will save. The gospel does it all. The gospel saves. Isn't that beautiful? This is the great and glorious gospel. And we've got to be reminded of that gospel. We are prone to forget that that gospel does it all. I mean, it is like your mother-in-law's phone number. It just slips out of your mind, right? I mean, it's just God. Okay, I heard this joke the other day. You know the difference between in-laws and outlaws? Outlaws are wanted, right? So, okay, but, but seriously, that, that is a joke. I love my mother-in-law, okay? Let's just get that straight. But we are prone to forget the gospel. It is the totality of how God saves us from first to last, the gospel. Let's keep going. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you should hold fast to the word I preach to you. You might circle that word, if. And here's, I think, the idea there. The gospel is easily lost. The gospel has always had competitors. Always had competitors. Galatians 1, right? You have turned to a different gospel. And this is why it's so important in every culture and in every generation to clearly articulate and to define this is a biblical gospel because it's easily lost. There are major competitors to the gospel today, preached in churches today. There is the moralistic gospel that you just kind of be good enough that you can kind of tack on your righteousness to the cross and then you're fine. That the goal of the gospel is just to kind of change your behavior. That is not the gospel. Okay, it's not about you being good enough to earn God's favor. Okay, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? That you just kind of believe it and claim it, and then you've got it. Like, like you just kind of throw your faith in there, and that's going to be the thing that makes God do stuff. That's going to be the thing that makes God defeat your cancer. That's going to be the thing that makes God increase your income by about 30%, right? Right? I mean, that is the, okay, you just, this is at its worst form. You just give three times as much today, and hey, you'll probably get tenfold this week, right? Okay, it's so adding our righteousness to this. Our prosperity, the riches of the gospel, and I'm not talking material prosperity, I'm talking spiritual prosperity, is not built on your righteousness, but on the cross. That's the gospel. And it's easily lost. It's always had competitors. And that's why we've got to clearly define it and always fight for it. Let's keep reading. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance. He's saying this. Listen, the gospel is central. I mean, this this is essentially what Luther said, commenting on Galatians 2.14, that it is the thing of central importance. The gospel is. And listen, in in our place, there can't be five things that are important. You can't have five things as most important. You can't have two things as most important. You've got to have one thing that is central. And this is the hub through which everything else flows. The gospel is it. He's saying, listen, the gospel is the centerpiece. The gospel is the central aspect of it all. It is the beam through which the glory of God shines most brightly. The gospel. Let's keep reading. Now, I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I received, the gospel's eternal. Paul received the gospel. He is passing on the gospel. We receive the gospel. We pass on the gospel. The gospel is at the center of the word of God, and the Bible is going to say that the flower is going to fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The gospel endures. The gospel's is eternal, e- eternal. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins. The gospel provides our substitution. We are hopelessly sinful people. The wrath of God is aimed at us. And the gospel, Jesus on the cross, provides our out. That alone. He fully exhausted the wrath of God. That's our only hope. He paid the penalty of God for us exhausted the wrath of God for us on the cross? This morning, we get to claim that Jesus is our substitute. That because of the cross, God treats us like we're Jesus and Jesus like he was us. Amen? He's our substitute. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and then listen to this word, in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Last, last truth here. The gospel is biblical. This is the biblical gospel. This isn't a man-made invention. This is the biblical way. So when you think of the cross, Jesus did not go to the cross just because somebody hollered crucify. Just because Pilate condemned him to the cross acts 2 is going to say that jesus went to the cross because it was the predetermined plan of god it's biblical it's god's plan this is the way he made it to be okay now here's what i think you would find across america right there we just stop here we get the hearty amen right i mean this is where we give the pump fist like we're ready to go yes i agree i am in I mean, that, that sounded good. Th- those 10 gospel truths, I like. But, but here's what I, I, and this is what's so interesting to me, and this has been kind of one of the major thrusts of this series, is I think that, that we would get amen to that all day long, but I think when you throw a piece of paper and say, write the gospel down for me. If it's that precious, tell me what it is. Show it to me. Tell it to me. If our neighbor comes to us and says, what is the gospel? You know what I think happens? Crickets start chirping. And guess what happens? And as we try to define it and explain it, I think it's really easy for us to miss massive chunks of the precious gospel. And so this has been the hope of this series, is that when those moments happen for us, that we have a clearly defined, this is our gospel. This is what the Bible says about it. This is how to articulate it. Okay, so let's review the the definition and then we'll go to Romans 1. Here's the gospel, right here. This is the definition we've been working with here, defined. The gospel. It's the just and gracious God of the universe. It's on the back of your bulletin as well. The just and gracious God of the universe. That just and gracious God, perfectly holy, looked upon hopelessly sinful people, a.k.a. you and I. And this was God's response and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross. And to show his power over sin in the resurrection. So that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel. And and here, okay, now this is the the final turn. And we're going to close the series up in Romans 1. You can go ahead and flip there if you want. When that gospel fully impacts a person's life. When both of your feet are planted in the gospel. It produces things in us. There are predictable movements that the gospel produces. And and so here's what I really want to do this morning as we finish this, is I want to ask you questions. Is the gospel producing these things, these predictable movements in your life that it should produce? The natural outworking, the natural flow of the gospel, is it producing these things? Okay, so that's going to be the question. So Romans chapter 1, I need to catch you up with just a little bit of background here. Um, background goes like this. Paul is the author of Romans. Okay, So Paul is writing Romans. And in Acts chapter 7 is our first introduction to this guy, Paul. could be called Saul, depending on where you're reading about him in the New Testament. Okay, so our first introduction to Paul is Acts chapter 7. Here's how we're introduced to him. Um, His peers have just falsely accused Stephen. They put him on trial, falsely accused him, and they've condemned him to death. So they are dragging him outside the city. They're going to throw him into a pit, and they're about to literally beat him to death with rocks. Okay, now that's hard for us to even comprehend, right? I mean, I cried literally. I think I was in like the fourth grade when my pet parakeet died. Okay, it was at night. He was in his cage. There was no blood and guts. Pretty sanitized thing, right? When you're thinking a person getting beat to death with rocks, there is an audio track underneath that, that is horrible. Would you agree? See, if we don't stop and think about that, then we just pass over that that has an audio to it. And that has a video to it. And that video would make us turn and discuss. Would we agree? Somebody getting beaten to death by rocks. Our first introduction to Saul is he is watching this go down. His peers have thrown their cloaks, kind of their coats, on his feet so they can get loosened up, get the rocks kind of stretched out and ready as they beat him to death. And here's, Luke is going to be careful to note this in Acts 7, that he's looking at this and and Saul, he approves of it. His stamp of approval is on it. In Acts chapter 8, first couple of verses, you're going to see Saul, and he's going to start going from house to house, dragging out men and women and throwing them into prison. That's our introduction to to Saul. I mean, he is the guy that if you're a dad, you've got a little girl that you're trying to raise up to know Jesus, to love Jesus. He's the guy, when he comes to the front door to date your daughter, is met with a shotgun, right? I mean, this is the Saul, the Paul of the scriptures. Okay, now in Acts chapter 9, he is going to Damascus to do the same thing. He's wanting to throw people of the way, following Jesus. He's trying to throw these people in prison. And in that moment, he is drastically, forever altered by the gospel. I mean, the the weight of the gospel is like a sledgehammer to his heart, breaking it beautifully into a thousand pieces. It breaks his hard heart on the road to Damascus. And in that moment when the gospel, the whole gospel hits the whole person of Paul, he is wholly changed. He is forever different. And listen, when when the gospel is faithfully preached and joyfully received, it affects the whole you. When it's faithfully preached, The whole gospel. And it is joyfully received. It affects all of us. It creates these movements in us. It cannot just go in and stay there. It creates something. It creates this movement. Okay, so in Romans 1, I want to show you in just one verse, three things that it created in Paul. And I want to ask you, are these things being created in you? Are these gospel movements? This gospel that is so precious. Is it creating these things? Okay, so here we go. Romans one one Starts out like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. And just circle that word servant. A servant of Christ Jesus. Okay, that is a rich biblical word. It's the Greek word doulos. Okay, so, so Paul is saying, and, and here's what doulos, if you're just going to go throw the word doulos around in first century Greek world, here's what you mean by that. You mean a slave. Paul is saying, Right off the cuff, I've been impacted to the gospel to such a degree that I am now a slave of Jesus. Rich biblical word. Okay, I'll throw these on the screen. You don't have to flip there. But if you run over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, okay, you've kind of got this idea of servants working itself out in several different ways. Paul's going to use a different word in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5. He's going to say this about this idea of of servants. And this is going to be, okay, now here's the context in in 1 Corinthians 3. The church in Corinth is trying to figure out, do I want that superstar of Christianity or do I want Paul this one? Do I want Apollos or do I want Paul? Am I going to podcast this guy or this guy? I mean, who's it going to be, right? Okay, and here's Paul's response. Is listen, why are you choosing any of us? This? this isn't about the servant. This is about Jesus. And this is how he defines himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. He calls Paul and Apollos, both of them, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. So again, he's using this word servants. Okay, that's a different Greek word, the, the, the word we would kind of derive deacon from. It's this idea of a servant, of a slave of somebody else. Okay, in, in Acts chapter 6, you get kind of the, the, the meaning of that is you've got people called servants that are waiting on the tables for other people. So you say, you know what I am? I'm not a superstar. I'm a person who waits on tables for Jesus. That's what I am. Okay, and then if you come down to 1 Corinthians 4.1, it's going to be on the screen for you as well. This is what he says. This is how one should regard us, me, Paul, an apostle. This is how you should regard me, as servants of Christ. Because that's a different Greek word. Okay, this would be the Greek word. It would be attached to this idea of under rowers. That you've got people on the bottom level of a ship, paddle in hand. One of the most dangerous and demeaning occupations. And they are obeying the, the master's orders, the commander of the ship's orders. So here's what you've got Paul saying. I am a servant of Christ Because of the gospel. So think with me here. He's not just saying servant, though. He is saying slave. Let's think about what a slave is. A slave has a master, a slave has laid down rights to his life, a slave takes orders from somebody else, a slave has been bought with a price. A slave is ruled, owned. And Paul saying, I am a slave of Jesus. Ruled by Jesus. Owned by Jesus. The gospel produced in Paul this movement. It's a movement to God, to Jesus. My identity is now in him. A slave has no identity apart from the master. And Paul's saying, this is what I am. A slave to Christ. He is my King. He is my Lord. Okay, there is this widespread belief in Christian circles that you can make Jesus Savior and not Lord. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Savior and Lord. When you get Jesus, here's what you've just done. You've laid down every lot, right to your life. You have just forfeited the... The right to determine the direction of your life, the direction of your days. Okay, now let me make this point because I think there's kind of this tension when you use the word slave in Jesus. Like, man, does God have a gun to his head? Is this like a whip that he's pulling? And it's not that. I mean, does that look like a, oh, no. I mean, that doesn't look like that. There's several different ways that you can be a slave to somebody. And this is the context for Paul. It is the slave to a great king. He has got a great master. I mean, the master is precious to him. He could not think of leaving the master. I mean, it's this idea of Jeremiah 2 where Jeremiah is going to say, this is what God is. God is a fountain of living water. And Paul is saying, here's my slave master relationship. He is the fountain of living water. And I want to stay in that living water for the rest of my days. That's where I want to live. It is a joy filled slavery to Jesus. It is a joy riddled road as we follow him. It is worth every temporal sacrifice we'll make. Okay, so let me ask you this question Has the gospel produced in you a move toward Jesus? He's master. I have laid down the rights as I follow him. If not, here's what's happened. Somewhere along the way, you have clicked the stop valve of the gospel coming into you. You have shut it off. This is the natural gospel movement in us. Okay, let's keep reading. So he starts out, Paul and a a servant, a doulos of, of Christ Jesus. And then he walks us into this next phrase. He says this, called to be an apostle called to be an apostle. Okay, so we've got to go to work here to to help this one make sense. So when he says called to be an apostle, an apostle in the New Testament, almost every time the word is used, it is used to refer to 13 people. It's used to refer to the the 12 disciples. Judas, he betrays. In Acts chapter 1, Matthias is, is kind of slotted in for Judas. Okay, then as you read the New Testament, Paul has now become an apostle. So those are the 13 people. They have seen Jesus and they are commissioned by Jesus. That's what an apostle is in the New Testament. Okay, now here's what I want to show you though. Is that the apostle, its significance is found in the people of God, in the church. They are an apostle for the church, called by God to serve in the church. Okay, so let me show you this in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can flip there if you want. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. So, so here's the context. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. Definitely a messed up place. I mean, they have got all sorts of problems. I mean, they're doing spiritual gifts issues that are totally unbiblical and out of, out of whack. They are literally, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. I mean, come on, really? You know, I mean, they have got all sorts of problems here. And, and in 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to try to give this body imagery for the church. That we are one among many. That our, our, we're supposed to plug ourselves in our part of the body into the the big body into the head of Jesus. We're supposed to plug ourselves in there. Okay, now this is how he's going to kind of continue this conversation. First Corinthians twelve, verse twenty seven. This is what he says. Going to be on the screen for you. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Because he's saying, listen, your significance is found in relationship to the body. You're members of the body. Okay, then he says this, and God is appointed in the church. He's going to say these are some members of the body. You might find yourself in one of these categories. First, First one is this, appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. Here's what he's saying, the gift of being an apostle the calling of God for Paul to be an apostle. It's not just that God says, Hey, you're an apostle. I mean, go throw your apostle card down wherever you want to throw it down. It's not that. He is saying this. You are called to be an apostle. And then look at this, these words here right in front of that in the church. So here's what he's saying. Paul, I am calling you to use your gifts in the church. You are called to the people of God. This is the second movement. That it's not just to Jesus. It is also to the people of God. God has called Paul and you and I to give our lives away inside of the church. So whatever your gifting is, whatever part of the body you are, it is meant to be plugged in to a local body of believers where it is exercised. That's the idea. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. Here's what that means. I've now got authority in the church, for the church, to work church discipline in the church, to teach the church, to write scripture in the church. But it's about being in the church. Paul loves the church. He loves it. He has been converted not only to Jesus, but to the people of God. He has been moved to the people of God, not just to God. Okay, now if you start reading in... In Romans 1, you're going to see this all throughout Paul's writing. Like If you go to the Romans 1, verse 8, this is what Paul's going to start saying. And just look at the affection, the love of the people of God. First, I thank my God. This is Paul speaking here. In verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Does that sound like somebody that's just kind of, oh, you know, I'll kind of give it to you. Maybe do the church, maybe not. No, like he is saying, I thank God for you. He has got affection for the church. He loves the church. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He was praying for the church. He loved the church enough to pray for it. Asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted to be plugged into the church. Verse 11, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul saw himself as such an intricate part of the church that you would encourage him, that he would encourage you. That you being in the church is for your benefit, for you to be encouraged. And for others' benefit, that you would do the encouraging. But that does not happen apart from you being plugged into a church. It doesn't happen. You keep reading here in in Romans 1.15, he's going to say, I have this eager obligation to preach in the the church. Romans 12, he kind of gives this body imagery again in in Romans, that we are one part in the body. We plug into the body. Paul saw the church as something that he loved. Okay, so I want to ask you the question. And I think this cuts across the grain of our just kind of contemporary way we think about church. Are you plugged into giving your life away to a local church? Are you doing that? So I think this is the normal way conversations go when, when you bring church up in people's life. Um, conversations go like this. Uh, so do you go to a church? Yeah. I. Stra- Strange enough, I go to five of them. And let me tell you what that's really saying. That's saying that I'm consuming from five places, but I'm withholding myself. That's what it's saying. It's like a teenager dating five girls. This one doesn't give me all of it, so I'll just go to this one too. And they don't really give me the whole, I'll grab this one too. All the while withholding yourself. I think this is normal conversation. Um, how do you feel about the church? Well, I, I love Jesus. Like that movement has happened. I just I don't like the church. That would be like somebody coming to you and saying, um, "You know, I, I kind of like hanging out with you, but why don't you keep your your wife in the closet?" The church is the bride of Christ, not an ugly bride. A beautiful bride. So I want to ask you I think this is how I, I think our culture promotes dating the church. Taking what you will, but not giving yourself. Okay, and can I just say it's sinful, it is sinful. We have stopped the gospel from working out in our lives if that is how we we operate, if that's the attitude of our life for the church. God has called you, listen to this, God has called you to marry the church. When you have married the church, you will give your life for the church. When you have married the church, the church is valuable to you. It's precious to you. And listen, I'm not saying that this has got to be your church. I'm just saying that God has called you to marry a local church and to give your life away in the context of a local church for your benefit and for the benefit of the local church. You will stunt your growth as long as you pop around to 15 places without giving yourself to a place. You've been called to marry the church, to give your life away to one. Find one that you can jump in both feet and marry, that you can protect, that you will fight for. So does the gospel produce that in you? I love the people of God. Not just the the head, but the body. Not just the groom, but the bride. I love it. I'm giving my life away to it. If not, we have stopped the gospel. Shut off thou. Last one, we're done. Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And here's what Paul's saying there. My life is wrapped around the gospel. And when he says the, the gospel of God, set apart for the gospel of God, he's saying that I am about getting the gospel out. The gospel does not terminate on me. The gospel flows through me to everybody I see. That's what Paul's saying. I'm set apart for the gospel. The gospel converts us not just to the head, to Jesus, not just to the body the people of God, but it moves in us a commitment to the mission of God. Set apart for the gospel, the mission of God. We we read this verse at the beginning of the service. Galatians 1. God has revealed Jesus to me the gospel, in order that, Galatians 1.15, in order that I may preach, purpose clause, in order that I may preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We are saved by God's glory for our joy and the joy of the peoples all around us. The gospel is not intended to stop with you. So let me ask you this question. Will the gospel stop with you or will it spread through you? That's the question. Does it stop with you or spread through you? What's it going to be? How's it going to work out? Stop with you, spread through you. Okay, now I want you to see this and we'll wrap this up here. The gospel creates an obligation to preach the gospel. I mean, that's what Paul's saying. I'm saved to preach it, it creates in us an obligation. I mean, we okay. It's not an optional thing for us to speak the gospel for us to proclaim the gospel. That is not an optional command. It is a command, right? Like it is. This is what you do. I mean, commands are things that you carry out, not that you discuss. And so in Matthew 28, we are to make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1, we are called to be a witness, to be a proclaimer of what has happened. Okay, so the gospel creates an obligation. If you look in Romans 1.14, Paul's saying, listen, I am under obligation to preach the gospel, to get the gospel to Greeks and barbarians, wise and the foolish. I am under an obligation for that. It is not an optional command. I have got to be a part of the gospel flowing through me. I've got to be a part of the mission of God. Mission of God is the gospel, rescuing, redeeming people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's the mission. And Paul's saying, I am under obligation to that mission. Okay, but the gospel does not just create an obligation. It also creates the motivation. It creates the obligation and the motivation. Like, if you look in verse 15, here's what Paul says. 115. I'm under obligation. I am eager to preach The gospel to you who are in Rome. I mean, so that doesn't sound like a begrudging obligation. That sounds like a very motivated, joy-filled, I am going to get to wake up today and preach the gospel. If you look at at, at Romans 15 verse 20, or 16 verse 20, Paul's going to say this. Here's my great ambition in life. The great ambition, here it goes. Is it going to be to make this much money? to have this sort of a business, to have this sort of a fill in the blank? Or is it going to be Paul's 1520? I am going to preach the gospel where Christ is not named. That's his ambition. That's, a, that's an illustration of the gospel working out in us the mission of God. And I pray that for us. Will the gospel stop with you or flow through you? It's not, a, I mean, every time I hear personal evangelism discussed, it's like with this guilt thing, right? It is, your neighbors are going to, okay, that, that's the motivation. The motivation is not that. The motivate, Paul's letter, the Roman letter here, it is a missionary support letter. That's why it was written. To arouse in people a want to be in the cause of God, the mission of God on the planet. Isn't it interesting how he writes a missionary support letter? Sixty times the word gospel is used. The first 11 chapters unpack the gospel. Missionary support letter, you know what the motivation of that? There's an obligation, you know what the motivation? The gospel. Until we get the gospel, we'll never be missionaries. Until we get the gospel, we'll never talk about it to our neighbor. Until we stand in the gospel... The gospel will always stop at us. Let me give you this last quote. John Stott said this about personal evangelism. It's going to be on the screen for you. The greatest single hindrance to evangelism is the secret poverty of our own spiritual experience. You know what hinders us from preaching the gospel to our neighbors? Here's what what hinders us is that we have not had a deep enough gospel experience. When the gospel has impacted your heart, you can't help but talk about it. It flavors every conversation, saturates every relationship. So let me ask you the question. Are you standing in the gospel? The hindrance, okay, so so tomorrow the, the answer is not just to get up and say, okay, I'm going to, Get in the conversation with my friend. The answer is first to preach the gospel to yourself. To know, understand the great gospel. And it motivates us to preach the gospel, to get into the mission of God as we proclaim the gospel. The plan is the power of God working through the people of God as we proclaim the message of God. May we be a place that jumps into that. Amen? Let's pray. So here's, here's the question for you this morning. Is the gospel flowing through your life? Is it flowing through you? Is the gospel being shut off, stopped, or flowing through you to Jesus, creating this movement, this desire, this hope, this pursuit of Jesus? Is it flowing through you to the people of God? I mean, is it doing that in you? Is it creating a love, not just for the groom, but for the bride? Giving your life away to the people of God. And is it creating in you a movement to the mission? The mission is God redeeming every nation, tongue, and tribe. Are you in that mission? When's the last time you've talked about the gospel with an unbeliever? Can I ask you that question? Last week? Last month? The last year? Man, those answers scare me. And the answer to those are the gospel. When we live in the gospel, the gospel becomes precious we talk about it, so god i pray for that i pray for that in the stone gate family lord i pray that we would be people who value the gospel who lift up the gospel who stand in the gospel who are being saved by the gospel god i pray for that god i pray for that And I pray that the gospel would produce in us a great desire for you that we like Paul would say we are slaves of the master of our great and glorious king Jesus we're slaves our identity is in him we have laid down all rights oh and I pray that with Paul we would say that we are deeply grafted into and connected to the church and to the people of God giving our life away to the bride, the precious bride, the dysfunctional bride, but the beautiful bride. And oh, with Paul, that we could say that we have been set apart for the gospel. That we would grow in such gospel awareness that we realize it does not stop with us. It flows through us. So God, I pray that you would smash through the greatest hindrance, spiritual poverty, a lack of gospel awareness, of gospel appreciation, of gospel wonder, of gospel awe. God, I pray that you would smash through that. And God, you would help us, the people of God, value the great and glorious gospel. So God, we pray that in your name, for your name's sake. I pray that you would work those things out in us. Amen.